Today on The Future of Fandom, we explore how to let superfans tell your story for you. My name's Adam Connor, I'm your host, and on this episode, we take a look at Rally and how it creates shareable experiences for its investors and diehards, all with the help of Rob Petrozo, their co-founder and chief product officer. We've chatted with a few fintechs and investing brands on this show. You know that, I know that, but Rob is a true modern-day pioneer of the belief that anything can be an investment. So he's seen the best and the worst of the trends within alternatives, and he's had a front row seat to the ways regulation impacts the ways financial brands can tell their stories. Not that that stops him. Rally has developed a cult following, and with a little experience tinkering and a lot of shareable moments, Rob has managed to steer his community into a frenzy whenever they get in on the investing action. We chat about this particular strength and how the future relies on that critical muscle, no matter who you are. So let's be super now and predict the future with Rally and Rob Petrozo. All right, Rob, how are you? Wonderful to have you on the show. Adam, what's up, man? Thank you for having me, dude. Appreciate it. So I've chatted with a ton of folks in uh, fintech and broadly within investing for this show, but uh, you're one of the earliest entrance to the world among those with whom I've spoken. And just before we got on here, we were talking about uh, just how we think alike and also how even the concept of this show we're doing, The Future of Fandom, very much applies to the ways in which you've built the audience over the years. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty of that, because it's interesting to me and our listeners, uh, let's just start with a very brief description of Rally for those who don't know, I assume most of them do, uh, and also like why you founded it, like what pulled you into this world so soon? Yeah, so that's a good intro, and it's also true in that uh, like fandom is also something that we've always thought about from day one. So when we started this platform, the long and short of it is that it's intended to have let regular people buy and sell fractional equity in unique, often one-of-a-kind assets that have a lot of historical and cultural significance. So every week, we run initial offerings, which are kind of like our version of an IPO. And that allows investors of all income levels to purchase shares of assets similar to the way you might buy shares of stock. And then we do that with no minimums and no commission. And then we also facilitate a secondary market for those assets through registered broker-dealers within the app that allows you to access liquidity daily during market hours. So you can buy and sell based on bid-ask after that initial offering runs. So really, it's about taking these really unique assets that have great history, great stories. We do our best to tell that story within the app. Then we allow you to own real equity in it and, and really put it into a portfolio. So for us, when we founded it, myself and my co-founders, Chris and Max, we always talk about it as like these missed opportunities are kind of what led us to put this idea on paper. So Chris, who uh, my co-founder, I've known forever, one of my one of my oldest friends, also one of my smartest friends, he's always really loved classic cars. But the idea of like owning the one that he wanted meant you know making the decision to spend all of your money and go get money and live your whole life sort of working to find this one kind of million dollar thing. When in reality, there are these millions of consumers everywhere. And these millions of enthusiasts in classic cars and in baseball cards and in dinosaur fossils and in NFTs and all the things that are on Rally now, these, these 20 different asset classes, they know everything about it. They know what the best ones are. They feel like they can see around those turns. But owning real equity in the best versions is impossible without owning the whole thing. So we saw the ability to sort of take what existed, that fandom that existed around these spaces, and to sort of allow regular people to get equity for 10 or 15 or $20 the same way you might buy stock and put the best version in your portfolio. So that for us was always the motivation. And when we started in 2017, I don't think that we envisioned the world changing as dramatically as it did to understanding what alternative assets were. But now we're in a place that 
we're able to bring awesome stuff that people really care about it every week. Yeah, I am so glad that you're here then to talk with us about this because, of course, listeners to the show will know that we've spoken to a couple of players here, but really folks who are just starting to trickle into it, either the executives themselves or the businesses themselves. You've been here since 2017, which was uh, very, very early in all of this. Uh, technically, I know the first, I think, NFT was made around 2014, 2017. They really, the first, first early adopters really started to jump in. So quite prescient that you should make a platform that was based around these broad alternatives. And you're right. The folks that are going to do well are those who are broadly diversified in their investments and that uh, you can extend, of course, that philosophy to all sorts of asset classes. Now, because of that, that being your breadth of coverage here, my guess is that since 2017, uh, lots of things have changed both about the offerings and the people who take up on those offerings. What are the most predominant trends that you believe have stayed consistent since that time and which are new? And then I want to ask about those you think are dying away, but I'm going to start with the ones that have been the mainstays and the newest. Yeah, so the real sort of heart of all of this, I think, and the big trend is not even necessarily asset-based. If you had 100 people on earth right now, one of those would control 50% of the wealth. And I think that that wealth inequality and that wealth gap is something that over the last, you know, when we first had the idea, 2015, we started putting it on paper. Seven years ago, between then and now, people have started to understand that in a way more real way. And the conversation around money has changed so dramatically. And our comfort with talking about money, just like, you know, the general, how much my salary is, or like talking to your friend about what they're spending their money on or the investments that they're making and the ability to broadcast those investments and have conversations with the tribe and with the community that cares about it the same way as you, that's this giant fundamental shift. And I think it was happening over the course of the last decade with the proliferation of more of the investment tools for retail investors, starting with like the E-Trades of the world, leading into Robinhood and Coinbase and all the asset classes that everyone knows they can invest in now. And the conversations that like kids have with their parents about NFTs, all that has kind of changed, obviously, and become way more commonplace. That all really accelerated during COVID. And I think it's impossible to ignore what that did for so many different types of investments. And in terms of access to information, it changed dramatically during COVID. So what we saw in the opportunity that existed for Rally was always that the future would involve you investing and putting your money in the things you care about and not necessarily as a discretionary purchase, as a true investment and true equity. The understanding of equity has changed so dramatically over the last six or seven years since we started this business that now trying to explain to somebody that a baseball car could be an investment or you know a blue chip NFT can be an investment, even though that's so relatively new compared to everything else on the platform, it's not as hard as it once was. It's as easy to tell somebody you, know, you can get a, a real return on a Michael Jordan rookie card or on a, a vintage first edition book, a first edition copy of Harry Potter, for example. You can get the same or better returns or be a part of a conversation about real equity with those assets the same way you might a 401k or a stock or real estate even. I think that's what's changed so dramatically. And we've seen that kind of become commonplace and obviously never investment advice, but I think people have kind of taken it upon themselves to find the asset classes that matter to them. And they've seen returns there as well. I've certainly seen it. Uh, the offerings have obviously broadened uh, that they are available now on your platform. And I can't help but think of the skepticism that came with what I had experienced as the first wave of like collectible hype. This is only back in the 90s. I mean, this is a real like legacy description, but we're talking like Beanie Baby era. What have you seen 
happened to the skepticism around these alternative investments between 2017 and now? I mean, of course, they've become more accepted, but have those skeptical voices gotten quieter or are they just the same volume drowned out by those enthusiasts that are getting involved with them? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I think that it always exists. And I think that people are inherently scared of what they don't understand. You know, like we, the things we find comfort in are the ones that we over-index and that's just human nature. And the things that you're uncomfortable with, it's really easy to say that's wrong and to take a really serious stance against the things that you don't understand. And I think that's happened throughout history with every investment. Like there was a time not that long ago where stocks were deemed too risky and everything was bonds. And then, you know, things start to change and REITs come out. And that's the thing that everybody looks at. It goes, oh no, that's never going to be a thing. It's too risky. And now, you know, real estate, that all that stuff, it makes up, you know, a significant portion of the way of the S&P. The same thing happened with crypto. The same thing happened with NFTs. I think what what's happened that's changed all of that is that the voice of a collective group and the ability to share that voice has gotten so dramatically larger to drown out those voices because, you know, passion, it gives you power and it really levels the playing field a bit. And at the most basic level, it's something you can bring to any conversation. At a higher level, it's how you find actual joy, and then you can make smart investments from that joy, and you can find other people who feel the same way. And I think that's what's helped rally for sure, but helped a lot of platforms who really key in on that passion and turn it into real equity. I think it starts with the fact that so many people are having the conversation now to drown out some of that the naysayers or the voices that are always going to be there because those are people who don't understand why somebody would invest in you know first edition literature. Why would you put that into a portfolio? That's a thing. But when you see all these people talking about it, finding all that joy from it, it's impossible to ignore at this point. Yeah, and it's something which I would have you know, initially assumed to be just the property of the elite, right? Who invests yeah. in art? Well, people who you know have money to buy their own island where they keep that art. You know, something like that <laughs> certainly has been more democratized now to anybody. And uh, listeners, you don't have to be on Rally right now. We hope you get there. But you don't have to be on there right now to understand that uh, these people who are really enthusiastic about this, their energy is electric and magnetic. These investments have not only gone through and they're, you know, they're maybe approaching the type of a hype cycle, who knows, but their value has also gone up considerably. And with that, you got to follow that money a little bit, comes other voices and people curious about this world namely the government. We're talking about regulation here for a mm -hmm. second, uh, Rob. I know that uh, these asset classes have exploded. Speculation on them has exploded. And so too has buzz about regulations. Now, obviously, you mentioned earlier that nothing that we're saying here is investment advice. But as a brand operator, how does tightening regulations around these instruments affect your ability to actively speak the message that Rally is trying to give? Yeah, I think it's funny because we we kind of got lucky in that respect and that we've never had like a ton of marketing or like a, even a true f marketing function at the company. There's no CMO here. I do a bunch of the brand stuff. We have a, you know, a great team that kind of on the operation side and on the social side that kind of just helps with sort of amplifying message. But our biggest driver and the biggest sort of uh, push toward the flywheel that becomes the conversation on Rally has been our users. And we've always kind of relied on them to tell our story. We've been as transparent as we possibly can be with them at every step, and they've kind of taken it upon themselves to go to work and go to bat for us. What's happening on the other side is that, you know, from a marketing perspective, you know, we work with broker-dealers who, who help us transact a lot of these individual assets, and they're the ones that, you know, put their stamp of approval and go through the KYC process and all that is all part of the platform. 
but it's also a situation where like we're not in a position of to we don't want to when we're not legally allowed to sort of like really promote these assets like the same way you might see some you know nonsense nft project that's being pushed on instagram by like some b-list celebrity we would never do that that's not a world we live in because we really think about these as true investments but also there's a lot of passion and a lot of information around these assets and the group around them are the ones that tell the story the most appropriate most effective way and that's our user base we always and each of these assets is essentially a regulated security so each of these are qualified by the sec they're reg a plus offerings which was part of the Jobs Act, which was from you know almost a decade ago at this point. But when Reg A Plus came out, the goal was to sort of you know bridge that wealth gap, and it was a, a measure taken to sort of allow for regular people to be involved in some of the assets and the investments that only the wealthy had access to. Where a platform that's really about bringing more of that to life and working with the SEC and with the regulators to make sure that we're doing that in the most appropriate possible way. And that's also a big differentiator for us too. I think NFTs and, and the marketplace and the unregulated marketplaces that are continuing to come out, we don't want to be on the wrong side of that. And I think that a lot of people will find themselves on the wrong side of it eventually. Working within the confines sometimes is a little bit rigid of the SEC and of the regulatory bodies, but it also allows us to sort of protect ourselves and protect investors in the most viable possible way. So that's always been like a working relationship that we make sure is, is above board. Well, it's a relationship that you have to work at these days, especially as that skepticism maybe doesn't necessarily get louder in aggregate, but certainly within uh, various projects that end up getting rugged or things sure. which are obviously scams, that, as you mentioned, um, are easy pickings for celebrities and influencers, not so much for the actual investors of those things. So it seems to me that the way that you're able to speak loudly is through those fans. And of course, this is great, not only for this show, but I have approached this topic over the last several years, listeners, even before this podcast. And so uh, that's what gets me excited because you have created fans. You have probably created super fans and those people are very socially loud. And while maybe you can't do as much active promotion of what you offer as possible, uh, as you'd like rather, these super fans are the ones who can just outside of your sphere of influence, how do you set up either rally or them to be able to spread that message? How do you empower them to be able to be loud? I mean, I would think that's some of the best ways to do it, certainly some of the most authentic ways to do it, assuming you can stay on the right side of those uh, influencer endorsements and all that. Uh, but I'm curious because you've done it well. You've just said yourself, not so much on the marketing side you've had to do, luckily. How have you maintained that? Yeah, I mean, I think the stories of each asset, we always look at those as, as like the celebrities. So it's, you can have, you know, someone that you pay $100,000 to, to go all over Instagram and put on their story and, and hashtag it as an ad, or you can build something that people really care about and then link it to the story of the asset. So, you know, whether it's like the Honus Wagner car, which is like the holy grail of baseball sure, cards, yeah. and we have one on rally, or, you know, it's a, a dinosaur fossil from millions and millions of years ago, or it's a NASA, some sort of NASA vintage something from, from Apollo 11, from a space shuttle. Those all have these stories that we do our best to tell inside the app as its own kind of mini editorial. The difference between us and a regular investment platform is that finance is inherently a zero sum game and it's like make money by any means. And there's sometimes nuance to it, but and I think everyone wants to do the right thing in some capacity, but experiential value has been looked at as the polar opposite of investment value forever. And that's why Tesla kind of feels way different as a stock than it does as a car company. And that's why Elon Musk, when he's tweeting and going crazy, people aren't like, oh, 
he's talking about cars right now. He's talking about the the experience and everything around it, and he's very, very opinionated. That's part of the story that he tells and the story that his tribe tells, that everybody who's in that cult of Tesla is going to tell that story for better or worse in the same voice as Elon Musk. What we try and do on Rally is that we take these assets that are really celebrities in their own right, we put the story inside the app, and then it's up to you to spread that as you want. Certain assets will get more attention than others. Certain stories will get more attention than others. We'll put a quick tweet out that tells that story in a thread maybe or, or gives a link to something else that is on YouTube that shows a video from the moment it was used. But then it's up to the users. They're the ones that amplify that content on our behalf because it's that interesting. It's that unique. And we've always tried to find the best possible assets to help tell the story without us having to do it. And it's worked to this point. Got any favorites among uh, the times in which it has worked? Yeah, I mean, the N NFTs are a really, really good example. I think that's like a world that it's got momentum all its own. And it's a massive, massive divergence from everything we've seen in finance at this point, the way people talk about it. We launched our first NFT. It was um, a CryptoPunk, which now has taken a little bit of a hit since the real run-up a few months ago when CryptoPunks were looked at as like one of the earliest NFT projects and they're the ones that gained the most celebrity attention. That was all happening in the ecosystem outside of Rally. We acquired our first CryptoPunk really well, where by the time we ran the initial offering at $72,000, the floor for that particular NFT, the, the cheapest price that any of them were for sale, was closer to $200,000. So at that point, you had this mechanism where everyone looked at it as an arbitrage opportunity that was investing on Rally. It was also the first NFT that we brought to Rally. It was before the peak of NFTs where you're allowing, you're allowing users to kind of use their insight and see around that turn and empower them to make a decision really early into a space. But also the biggest difference with the way NFTs work on Rally versus the way they work if you were to buy from OpenSea or from one of the third-party platforms is that it doesn't require you to own crypto or to have a wallet or to have a seed phrase tucked away somewhere or to have a ledger. It doesn't require you to link a wallet when you get to a separate website. It's the same transaction you make by buying anything. You're linking an ACH or a bank account and then making a one-click purchase. I think that was the big differentiator, doing it with NFTs, doing it with an underpriced NFT, and then doing it with one that was a marquee blue chip NFT, doing it really early. Putting that out on Twitter once saying it's going to be live in a week was enough to generate the type of interest that we had never seen before from any offering. And that was one of the best days in terms of new investors, in terms of engagement, in terms of every measurable metric on Rally, the day that that offering went live for that CryptoPunk. And then we have this little mechanism at the end of each offering where once you make your investment, you get a little shareable card that says you're in. It has an image. It talks about a little bit about what that asset is, and it goes to Twitter or Instagram or any of your social media accounts. And that was the most we'd ever seen anything shared from the platform ever was after that offering was done. So now you have three, 4,000 people who own this really unique, significant NFT and they're able to talk about it and be a part of this group that felt really closed off beforehand. I think that for us, it was a big win, but it was a bigger win for investors and for, for you know the people who were able to get their first NFT on Rally, of which 70, 80% or something like that. And we did our user surveys had bought their first NFT on Rally. So Anytime we could do something like that, where we're hitting on the zeitgeist, it's part of a cultural moment, but we're able to sort of break down the barriers to entry in such a way that makes you part of something you weren't sure you could be a part of. That's when it takes off on its own. And that was a really good example of it. Gosh, I'd say so. To be able to issue this, um, can we call it literally a status symbol to folks who had gotten in on this? I mean, anybody who, listeners, again, you should get on Rally, but whether you're there or not, if you've seen anything on Twitter about the latest shoe drop. I mean, doesn't, I think the sneakers app does this, doesn't it? When they get it, don't they give you an image that you can share that says like, I got it or something? Yeah, with, like, I'll be picture? honest. Like there, there are certain growth mechanics that it's easier to, to think about what others have done successfully than reinvent the wheel. 
that's where we took it from. Like that was when I first started okay. this when I first started designing the first version of the app, it was one of those things where it's like sneaker culture is so is diverging right now with investment culture. They're all part of the same thing. What the Nike app does well is allow you to share your purchase after it's done. But they also they also foster a community where saying like you took the L and you didn't get in is as big a part of it. So even when there's like you didn't get the sneaker, the community that forms around that drop is so impactful and it's so important to the future of that platform and the community. Emulating that as best we could was always part of the thought process with the way that we do shareability on Rally. Yeah, totally. I mean, that is something that now that I've heard it and seen it elsewhere, and I have this like, duh moment where I'm wondering why others don't do it, but maybe it's because they, they aren't like you. Now, I have a question then to round us out because that's certainly novel. Creating uh, shareable pieces of the experience is a way in which you can continue to grow this fandom, especially outside your four walls. But as we stated towards the top, you were early to this uh, broader alternative world, early back in 2017. Today, there are plenty of services out there. We've had a few on this show. Um, dipping their toes into that world. It's crowding. Thus, uh, I'm curious, as it crowds, what will the elements of a world-class experience on one of these apps, yours or somebody else's, but hopefully yours, what will it look like in the future? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I think it's one of those things where, you know, kids always kind of want to do what adults do. When, like, you're young, you see an adult doing something, you want to do it. And adults are always going to chase what kids are doing. And that if you make good products for either one of those, you're, you're usually good. I think something like Rally and where a lot of the big ideas are going to come from are, are things that hit on both. Where like somebody gets to plan for their future and invest in a way that's really interesting while they're young. But if you've seen a few things and you know a few of these sort of plays that are, that are coming to life right now, you can kind of put your money where your mouth is. That's what we did really well. I think the amount of ideas that are, that are kind of coming to life and the supply coming to market is moving at a pace right now that we've never seen before. But the pace of innovation and the pace at which kind of information sticks is also increasing exponentially. And that pace is like relentless right now. So really, it's a matter of, in my mind, it's a lot, it's going to be, and it is right now, a lot more of quantity with quality. So it's one of those things where you can't really sacrifice both right now. I think a lot of what we're going to see is that when those communities get built and the fandom gets built around a lot of these communities and you have a product that hits on all those points where kids love it, adults love it, and it's also moving quick. It's hard to deny that in a space that we're in right now because it's, it's one of those things where like great ideas come from people, but they're brought to life by community. And that's kind of the litmus test. That's like the pass fail. So if you have a good idea, you're moving quick, you put it out in the world. It's something that allows like real sort of investment in community or even things like the way we've done it. It's going to come to life. Enough people care about it. I think that's what we found out in 2017. And we see it every day now. The more people that care about what you're doing the money flows and the ability to make money with a product flows if you get that community to care about it. But the pace right now, it has to be like head down building. That's the only way to bring things to life right now because there's 4,000 kids that are just like knocking this out every day right now. They're going to have a hit just by the numbers. You got to catch up with that right now. We got lucky in that it was still really early 2016. We put this on paper. So to get to where we're at now was just that relentless pursuit of kind of uh, building things that people care about. So let me hit you with two more quick hits before we get out of here. The first is that you saw this before most five or six years ago. Um, today, as you've noted, uh, people are building new projects every single day. What, if you don't know exactly what it is, in, in what vein of thought do you think the next super early future rally founder is thinking right now? I mean, amidst all this noise of projects, 
What do you think doesn't get enough attention? Man, that's a good question. I think that part of our mission, and I think this, this should be the mission of everyone who's working on something new right now, and I think a lot of kids are thinking about like this, especially in the NFT space, is um, building to make money and like building a product that that solves a need or or taking away like friction. That was the biggest thing. When Robinhood came out, the idea was like, damn, this UX is seamless. They built something that I've never really seen what this looks like before. I've seen this movie before, but I've never seen it played this way. It's kind of like the way it was looked at. Now it's about making things meaningful. And that's what we've always thought about too, because people care way more about the outcome and the product and the prettiness of it and the aesthetic and making sure it's something they could use but use in a way that it feels shareable and it feels like they're part of something new way more than they care about the return right now. And that's from a user perspective. So if you're building anything right now, if I, if there was a kid right now and I I talk to, I try and talk to as many of like the 17, 18, 19 year old builders. And I try and make, you know, small seed investments in in these founders. So I see that kind of have that, that twinkle in their eye a little bit where they're thinking about it more about experience and about making sure people care about what they're building than making money on the product early. That's the, the be all end all. That's what opened up all of Web3. That's what the idea around like NFTs with real utility. And that's what the on-ramps look like right now. And that's why these alternative chains are starting to pop up. And that's why like tokens would share governance and the way NFTs are looked at is not just art anymore, but part of this remarkable new shift in the way people think. All that is kids that are building with the experience in mind of making it meaningful and not like, I'm going to make a billion dollar company. I think that's the, my generation has that like, make a next Facebook and exit that was always the mentality really early on for like anyone in like their mid to late 30s. But someone now who's like 18, 19, they want to make like dope shit for their friends right now. They want to make something that everybody cares about as soon as they start using it and call them up and be like, oh, this is awesome. I'm a part of this. Anyone building right now with that in mind, all the other stuff comes with it. That's been the real fundamental shift that at least I think I've seen over the course of the last, you know, five, six years, especially in marketplaces. And hey, the first Facebook was built on that premise. Let me yep. make something cool for my friends. That's actually, you know what? That's actually true. I came and talk crazy. I'm thinking about it more as like the 20 to 2011 Facebook and not the 2004 Facebook. You're right. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Totally. All right. Let me round out one more. It's a, it's a bit of an inverse question at you, but uh, we've talked a whole lot about what you think the uh, future will be. If you could fill this blank for me, I'd, I'd be entertained. Um, I, Rob, could tell you, the listener, that the, the future of this alternative investment world will definitely not include blank. What is that blank? Damn. I mean, in my mind, it's it's going to include everything. So it's hard to say that. What it won't include is is stepping in front of a moving train. So anyone who's a naysayer right now to something as simple as NFTs or something as sort of you know old school as gold, you're probably making the wrong decision. That's probably something that you're going to regret at some point in the next 10 to 20 to 30 years. And I think that's like the biggest thing for me. That's a little bit of a, a nuanced answer. It's probably the wrong answer, but that's the way I think about it. Well, I mean, all of us are sort of guessing at what will be the next uh, biggest, brightest, and greatest. Um, thankfully, you've been there since the beginning, so you have a little more directional knowledge than most, and I'm glad that you've shared that here with us on the show. So, Rob, for telling us the rally story, uh, thank you so much uh, for predicting the future with us. Adam, thank you so much. I appreciate it. If you've listened all the way through, it's clear you like podcasts, or maybe it's just us. But in case it's the former, Rally has a podcast as well. It's called The Best Money I Ever Spent. Take a listen to their stories as well. They got Gary Vee as the launch guest. This host is a little jealous, not gonna lie. 
Thanks to you, the listener, of course, for exploring the future of fandom with us. I'd encourage you to stay connected, subscribe to us wherever you listen to your shows, and you can also find us at livelike.com slash podcast and on social, LinkedIn at LiveLike and Twitter at LiveLike Inc. I look forward to predicting the future again with you real soon, and until then, I'm Adam Connor saying so long and thanks for being a fan. <laughs>